All right, Luke chapter 10, we're going to start at verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Well, this story all begins with a lawyer, doesn't it? Now, when it says a lawyer, we should probably understand it in the biblical context of not being someone who would represent a client before a court of law there in the community of Israel, but probably how we should understand it as someone who was an expert in the law of Moses. He was one of the scribes, one of the experts of the law, one of the well-educated men in sort of the upper class of Israel. And when it says there in verse 25 that he came to test Jesus, that he tested Jesus, the idea behind the ancient Greek word for tested isn't necessarily bad. He's just simply asking a question. We shouldn't think that somehow this was an antagonistic man coming in this adversarial way to Jesus. I think it's probably entirely fair to see this man as a sincere seeker. Jesus, I know something is empty in my life. Jesus, I know that I need something. What must I do to inherit eternal life? By the way, the way he phrased that question was very well. What shall I do, verse 25, to inherit eternal life? Now, the biblical understanding of eternal life is not necessarily life that begins after you die. In the biblical understanding of eternal life, you're talking about something that you can have right now. Eternal life begins now. It refers more to a quality of life than it does a length of life. And that quality of life you can have right now. I think it's an exciting thing for us to be able to tell people, you can have eternal life. And that's the gift of God to us in Jesus Christ. So this is what this man, this lawyer, wanted to know. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus answers back to him in verse 26. And almost, some people think it's sarcastic. Some people think Jesus is being provocative to the man. But he says back to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? Now, what's funny or sort of provocative about Jesus' response was that this is what he said to a lawyer, a man who was an expert in the law. This man knew the Mosaic law forwards and backwards. He could probably recite to you, if not all of the five books of Moses, almost certainly I could say this man could recite to you every law in the Mosaic law and probably many rabbinic different interpretations of it he had memorized. He knew the law. And so when Jesus says, well... What's written in the Bible is what basically Jesus said. It's almost sort of an insult. It would be sort of talking to a man who's a great seminary professor or a Bible expert and say like that. And he asks a question, he goes, well, can you tell me what the Bible says? It almost has that kind of feel to it. And so he wanted to know, go back. And then what did he say there? Well, he says, verse 27, this was the reply of the man. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer was wise enough to know that this is the essence of the law. This is a pretty wise man. He looks at the law of God and he says, okay, I get it. 
I get what the core principle of the law. The core principle of the law isn't about a ceremony. It isn't about a religious ritual. It isn't about this or about that. The core principle of the law is, number one, loving the Lord your God with all you are and all you have. And then after that, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of the law. So what did Jesus reply to him? Jesus just simply said, it says right there. And he said to him, you've answered rightly. Do this and you live. Well, Mr. Lawyer, great answer. Perfect. Now all you got to do is go out and do that and you'll live. Now, what does this mean? What the man answered? Well, first of all, it's clear enough what it means to love God with all that we are. Although it's impossible to do it completely. But there's not much confusion about what does it mean for me to love God with everything that I have. I'm not saying that any of us can do it perfectly, but at least in essence, I think we can have a fairly easy grasp. I think there's been much more misunderstanding about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, in the minds of many people, loving your neighbor as yourself begins with loving yourself. And there have been many people who teach this. Okay, the first thing we got to do is we got to teach you to love yourself. Then you can love your neighbors yourself. And I just, oh, my stars, what a backwards way of thinking. Did you know, and I don't mean this as a personal insult to anybody here. I'm speaking to myself as well, but I'll just say it to you because it sounds better to me. You're already an expert in loving yourself. You do it pretty well. I mean, this is just, this is human nature. We don't need any instruction. We don't even help in loving ourselves. Now, it is true that some people believe harmful and destructive lies about themselves. That is entirely true. And there are people who need to be told and need to believe the truth about who they are, especially the truth about who they are in Jesus Christ. I don't deny that for a moment. But the basic instinct of self-love and self-preservation and self-promotion, that's pretty well ingrained in us all. Jesus said, you already got that part down. Now why don't you turn an outward focus and love other people the same way? Love others in the same way that you quite by nature do quite well. Love yourself. You care for your own interests. You care for your own needs. Have that same outward-looking attitude towards others. So that's pretty simple, right? Jesus says, okay, what's the law? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, great, then just do it. Now notice what he says here in verse 29. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now the lawyer gets slippery. He seems very lawyerly here, doesn't he? Let's parse out the law for me, Jesus. Now, it's very interesting, the man's reply. He measured himself against both commandments. All right, I just told Jesus the two commandments that are essential for gaining eternal life. Now, by the way, can I just pause for a moment and say something? Doesn't it seem clear that this lawyer knew that he didn't have it? There was some deep inner knowledge inside of him that he did not have what he came to Jesus to ask about possessing. There was an empty place in him, an awareness. I need this. Whatever this quality of life is that we describe as eternal life, I don't have it. 
Then when Jesus asked him, how do you get it by keeping the commandments? He said, okay, I'll recite the commandments. And he says, well, you know, okay, I guess I got all this. I guess I know how to do this. And then Jesus answered back to him and says, okay, now all you got to do is do this. Then the man gets evasive. And he says, who's my neighbor? Instruct me in this. Now, I think that perhaps the man's first and greatest mistake was in assuming that he had fulfilled the first commandment, right? Doesn't it seem that way? He's doing the mental checklist. Okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Check. The next one, ooh, well, then who's my neighbor? I don't know about that one. Do you see how messed up that thinking is? Is there a single person who's ever walked this earth who has truly loved God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. No. Look, you got to admit, sometimes we fulfill this more than others, but every one of us has fallen short according to this command. It would seem as if the lawyer did just this mental checklist and said, fine, I'm good on that one. What about the neighborly one? He goes to the second mistake and he says, he says, hmm, what about my neighbor? Now, Do you see what the inward knowledge are? What's the inward knowledge? First, you can sense the inward knowledge in him. I do not have eternal life. Now, second, you can sense the inward knowledge. I don't love my neighbor the way that I should. He knew this about himself, didn't he? Now, do you see that there's a connection between the two commands? If you truly love God the way that you should, you will love your neighbor the way that you should. Isn't that what Jesus told us? Isn't that what John told us in some of the amazing statements found in that letter of 1 John? He that says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. You kind of love the subtle way that John phrases those things. I mean, there's nothing subtle. John is about as subtle as a sledgehammer. He comes at you just straight away. You claim that you love God and everything's right with him, yet you can't stand the people around you. No, you're wrong. Because if you really loved God, it would show in the way that you love other people. So that was the man's first mistake, thinking that he had fulfilled the first commandment. The man's second mistake was thinking that he could fulfill the first commandment without fulfilling the second commandment. But I think he made a third mistake as well. The third mistake was in the way that he wanted to narrowly define what a neighbor was. And this is where his lawyerly skills start, you know, getting sharp. You know, if I define neighbor in just the right way, okay, yeah, then I love my neighbor as myself. My neighbor is the guy who lives on my right, but not on my left. Or my neighbor is the guy who's related to me in this thing. You know, if you just define it the right way to exclude all the difficult people in your life, then you could say, fine, I love my neighbor as myself. Now, The Jews in Jesus' day did believe that you had an obligation to love your neighbor. They taught this. This was well known. The, The lawyer quoted it himself. This was not a strange commandment to the lawyer. He knew it. But many of the Jews of Jesus' day, not all, but many, Many of the Jews of Jesus' day said that there was a corresponding obligation to not only love your neighbor, but to hate your enemy. And so they divided up the world into two groups. These are my neighbors that I'll love, and these are my enemies whom I will hate. And that's the way they thought. So Jesus is going to tell a story now. 
that will illustrate the point. Verse 30. I'll read all the way to verse 35 just because it's such a great story. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Very vivid story, isn't it? Jesus says, okay, Mr. Lawyer, Let me respond to you. Let me respond to your question, who is my neighbor? I will respond to the question of who is my neighbor by telling you a story. And the story begins with a certain man, verse 30, a certain man who went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. He traveled that well-known road that goes in between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, Jerusalem is a city that's high in elevation. And if you are going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're going down elevation over very barren, rocky wilderness. There's a lot of caves. There's a lot of hills. There's a lot of hideouts. And in Jesus's day and in the not so recent history, this road was well known for being populated by bandits and thieves and muggers and bad people. Matter of fact, It may very well be when the people who were listening to Jesus, when they heard him say this, a certain man went from Jerusalem to Jericho by himself? What a fool. Who'd be that dumb? It'd be like walking through the worst area of town, the most crime-ridden area of town, you know, with the money bags on either side of you and all alone. You're just asking for it, mister. Therefore, nobody was surprised when it says that he fell among thieves. Matter of fact, William Barclay even says that according to the understanding of that day, that man would have been obviously reckless and foolhardy. If he got jumped and mugged, it was his own fault. But that's exactly what happened to him. He got jumped, mugged, beaten, left for dead in the roadway. They took everything that he had and they left along the way. Now, I do want you to notice this, that the man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was leaving the holy city, probably at least, you know, most readily, we would think, having conducted some sort of religious business at the temple. By the way, it was true in Jesus's day, and his original hearers would have picked up on this immediately, that very many of the priests and Levites who ministered in Jerusalem lived in Jericho and made this journey back and forth, you know, somewhat frequently. So I don't know if the man who was jumped and mugged and robbed, I don't know if he was a man who was a priest or something like that, but he was going away from Jerusalem, got robbed, and was left for dead. And then what happened? Well, two different people came by him and just walked by. And they weren't just any people. One was a priest, 
a high official serving God's people at the temple. And the other one was a Levite, another kind of sort of civil servant, almost like a support person in God's work there at the temple. And these two people who should have had every religious background, every religious notice to do something, they should have. What did they do? They just walked right by him. Verse 31 spells it out. It says, now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. The priest and the Levite saw their Jewish brother laying down there in terrible conditions. And rather than doing anything, both of them, it says one in verse 31 and the other one in verse 32, both of them passed him by on the other side. Not only did they not go up and help him, but what did they do? They distanced themselves. They walked away from him. Not only am I not going to bend down and see if the man is alive or if I can help him or, or, you know, bandage up his bloody wound or something like that. Not only am I going to do that, I'm going to avoid him so much that I'm going to put distance between myself and him. You say, why? Why would they do this? You know, it's amazing how brilliant the human mind can be when it comes to thinking up excuses for doing what we should do. So I just thought of it. I just put my own, you know, evil mind together and and thought of all the excuses that the priest or the Levite could have offered. Here we go. Here's my list. Uh, This road is too dangerous for me to stop and help this man. Um, He might be a decoy for an ambush, which, by the way, they did that from time to time on on that road. They set out a decoy and used him for a man. Oh, no, that's what this is, so I better pass right by. It, it, they might have thought, I, I've got to get to the temple and perform my service for the Lord. I don't have time to help somebody. How about this one? I've got to get home and see my family. I don't have time for this. They walk by and they say this, you know, somebody should really help that man. I hope we do something about this. How about this one? Uh, I'm going to go serve at the temple, and I can't get my clothes bloody. If I get my clothes all bloody, I can't, I can't show up to work looking like this. I don't know adequate first aid. I never really learned that class. How about this? They look at the man and they say, he's a hopeless case. Can't do anything for him. Hopeless. I'll just move on. How about this one? I'm just one person and this job is too big. Whatever this one man's need is, it's too much for me to do. I can't do anything about it. How about this one? Ouch, this one hurts to me. I'll pray for him. I'll walk right on by. Or how about this one? He brought it on himself. He should have never been alone on such a dangerous road. How about this one? Finally, he never asked for help. Well, of course, he's unconscious, but he never asked for help. Now, look, you know, as I read those, all of those are excuses, but all of those sound hauntingly familiar, don't they? How easy it is for just us to walk on by. Now, all of that sets the stage for verse 33. Because what happens in verse 33? Then Jesus shocked his listeners. I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised. Now, it just says that one man, but there would be disciples and other people, just curious people around listening to Jesus. I wouldn't be surprised if this instance, they were just shocked. I mean, there was a gasp among the crowd when Jesus said, but a certain Samaritan. Samaritan? What? Now, this is what they're expecting. But a certain Samaritan walked by the man in the gutter and kicked him a few times and walked on. 
That's what they're expecting. But what does he say? Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. When Jesus' listeners heard about the priest and the Levite, they probably expected, this is what we're going to hear. Who was the next guy that came along to help him? Just a common, everyday Jewish man. Oh, those religionists, those professional religion guys, they were always giving Jesus the business, weren't they? And so, okay, I get it, Jesus. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're always hammering at you. We'll put them aside, and some common, simple Jewish farmer comes, and it saves the day. But it wasn't a common, simple Jewish farmer. It was a Samaritan. He shocked them by saying in his story that the man who helped him was a certain Samaritan. And I don't have time to go into it right now, but just suffice it to say that in that day, there was no kind relations between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was racial animosity. There was cultural animosity. There was religious animosity. To say it this way, generally speaking, The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. It was a mutual hate fest. But what did he do? Verse 33, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of them. You see, the Samaritan didn't walk right on by. Instead of walking right by, he came close to the man. He bent down to where he was, and he saw the need, and he met it even without being asked. You see, just seeing the need in front of him was enough of a motivation to do something about it. And he gave freely to the man. He gave freely of his time. He gave freely of his trouble, and he gave freely of his money. Notice this, he poured on wine on the man's wounds because wine has alcohol in it and it had an antiseptic effect. Then the oil that he put on the wounds helped soothe the wounds, easing the pains. And then he set him on his own animal, which means what? The Samaritan walked. Here, dear sir, you're injured. You ride on my animal and I'll walk right beside him. And then what did he do? Verse 35, when he came to the inn, he came to the inn and he gave the innkeeper two denarii. And that, from what we know, would provide for the man's needs for maybe two or three weeks. We read this and we go, wow, that's giving. Now, before I go further, let me observe a couple of things. First of all, I know many of you are thinking, I know I should have given something to that homeless guy who had a hat out. I'll say this. Maybe you should have. Maybe you shouldn't have. This is what I believe. I believe that we should seek to do good for all those who are in need. But you and I both know, don't we, that oftentimes, I'm not going to say all the time, oftentimes giving people in such a situation Money, cash, does not do them any good. What Jesus painted for us in the picture of the Good Samaritan was a situation where the good was immediately apparent. There was no doubt that it was good to bind up the man's wounds. There's no doubt that it was good to take him to the inn. There's no doubt that it was good to rescue him this way. But notice this, even with all this situation, the man in Jesus' story did not give the man who was injured the money, but he gave it to the innkeeper. 
And I mean, look, sometimes we just recognize that when we see a needy person who's asking for a handout, you're not helping them by giving them cash. You're not helping them by giving what at least they say or think that they need. And our biggest heart is to help, actually help, not just do something to make ourselves feel good. And so, look, what do you do? Well, I don't know. I just try to keep a prayerful spirit about it. And sometimes I give to people in those situations, and sometimes I don't. I try to be guided by the Spirit. And and I almost guarantee you, sometimes I get it wrong. I'll tell you what I do sometimes. I don't do this all the time, but it's kind of fun to do. If I give somebody, say, like a dollar, I'll say this. I want to give you this dollar, but do you mind if I pray with you first? Well, and then this is what I pray. I say, Lord God, I give this to my brother, sister, whatever. I give this to this other person. I give this to them. And Lord, if they're going to use this dollar for drugs or alcohol or pornography, I pray that you'd put a curse on this dollar and that it would be the last dollar that they see in a long, long time. But Lord, if they're going to use it for the legitimate needs of their life and their necessities, I pray that you'd bless this dollar and bring more to them. I've had occasion people turn down the money after I prayed that prayer. (laughs) Look, the lesson is clear, though. We do need to seek to do good for those who are in need. Now, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later when we take a look at the next two verses. But I do just want to say one more thing before verse 36 to say simply this. I want you to look at the ways in which the Samaritan is an illustration of Jesus. Yes, it's good for you to see yourself in the Samaritan and say, what good can I do for other people? But I want you to see Jesus here as an illustration or being illustrated by the Samaritan. First of all, the Samaritan was an outsider despised by many. Is that not true of our Savior? Secondly, the Samaritan came after others had failed to meet the need. Isn't that true of Jesus? Thirdly, the Samaritan came before it was too late. And that's always true of our Savior. Next, the Samaritan came with everything necessary. Isn't it wonderful that he had the oil and the wine and the bandages and the denarii with him and the animal to carry the thing on? When Jesus comes to a sick soul lying in the gutter, he comes with everything necessary. Third, the Samaritan came right... Third, this is fifth or something. Fourth, whatever. Somebody keep count for me. The Samaritan came right to the afflicted man. He didn't try to help him from a distance. He came right down to to where he was. Next, the Samaritan gave him tender care, and then the Samaritan provided for his future needs. Isn't all those things a beautiful illustration of the way that Jesus comes to a sick soul? And before we move on to verse 36, I'll just say it very quickly. If you feel that you've been mugged and beat up and abused by life, and you feel like other people pass you by and nobody really seems to care. Listen, I hope that somebody here, some flesh and blood human being around you, reaches out and helps you. That's a good thing. But what you really need is the care of Jesus. What you really need is him, the ultimate outsider who came close to us to meet our needs. You need to receive something from him. Because he's the one who can come and really bring that oil, uh, that oil, that wine that you need for your wounds. He's the one who can provide for your future needs. All right, verse 36. Now, again, we, we get so into the story that we forget the whole scene. I, I, I'm as guilty as this as anybody. Jesus is speaking with the lawyer, 
Right? Remember the lawyer? We've forgotten all about him. And what was the question? What was the lawyer's original question? Who is my neighbor? The story was all about illustrating that. So we come back to this, and Jesus asked in verse 36, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? You know what, Jesus? It almost would have been kinder if you would have taken out a blade and shoved it in the guy's ribs. I mean, isn't that a great? Does anybody doubt I'm speaking metaphorically there? I don't think Jesus would have done that. But, I mean, what a thing. What a question. Do you realize how brilliantly Jesus turned it around? Jesus turned it around this way. The man's original question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, let's ask another question. Who are you going to be a neighbor to? It's a different question, but it's really the more important question. You see, according to the thinking of the day, the priest and the Levite were neighbor to the man who had been beaten and robbed, but they didn't act like neighbors at all, but rather it was the other man. That's why sort of dumbfounded. What did the man reply here in verse 37? And he said, he who showed mercy on him, then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Which one's the neighbor? Well, the one who showed mercy to him. Not the priest, not the Levite, even though they were fellow Jews, even though they had the same religion, the same ethnicity, they didn't have the same heart of compassion. No, he said, the one who would actually come and help him. And he said, go and do likewise. You see, obviously now at this point, the lawyer knew that he could no longer justify himself. The lawyer knew that he didn't have this kind of love that Jesus was spoken about. He didn't have the kind of love that went beyond what he wanted to think of as neighbor. Yes, maybe I love the people that I already like. Congratulations, you love the people who love you back. Good for you. What, what good is that? Hello, you, you love the people that you like. Well, aren't you special? You see, Jesus is saying, what about the people that by nature or by, by other people's expectations you should have animosity to? Those are the ones that your love is measured by. And that's why when Jesus says, verse 37, go and do likewise, it sort of hits us, doesn't it? Jesus allowed the parable to answer the lawyer's question and to guide the application. I am to love my neighbor, and my neighbor is the one whom others might consider to be my enemy. My neighbor is the one who has a real need right in front of me. Now, let me stress to point out, this doesn't mean necessarily running after every need that might present itself. We are faced with an infinite number of needs and good causes and things that we can get behind. And it takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of discernment. It takes a lot of wisdom to be able to say, I'm going to be able to give towards this and support that and maybe not give towards the other thing. Because there's so many needful, helpful, worthy things in the world today. I do want you to understand this. The Samaritan didn't establish a hospital for unfortunate travelers. He said, I can do this. I can meet this one need. This one need is right in front of me. I can meet this. You see, that's what Jesus asked us to do, to have a plain concern for the people right in front of us, both in their social and their spiritual needs. Now, Jesus said, go and do likewise. What happens if you can't? 
What happens if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? What happens if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, as expressed in this parable of the Good Samaritan? Then you better go to Jesus because you can't earn your way to heaven. You better come by faith in the Savior who made the way for you. Because you want to know who did keep these two commandments perfectly? Not you, Jesus. And he is our righteousness when we put our faith in him. All right, let's take a look now. We'll move fairly quickly through the story of Mary and Martha. Verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into his home, into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. A woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her home. This was Martha and Mary, who along with their brother Lazarus, were dear friends to Jesus. They lived in Bethany, not very far outside of Jerusalem. And it's very logical to think that because Jesus was such a dear friend, because this was approaching the ending point of his earthly ministry, remember Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for his final passion for his crucifixion and his resurrection because they've known him because they love him because they know the extremity of his life what are they they want everything to be perfect for him especially martha i want everything to be perfect for jesus and so what does it say well it says that she was distracted with much serving does it not but mary was different look what it says there in verse 39 it says of mary who also sat at jesus's feet and heard his word You see, as Martha was so busy trying to make everything perfect for the visit of Jesus, what's Mary doing? Well, I don't think that Mary did nothing. Because look at what it says there in verse 39. It says, Mary, who also sat. Now, I take that to mean, and I hope I'm not drawing something out of here that doesn't belong, also implies in addition to. I don't think that Mary did nothing to prepare for Jesus' coming. But she prepared the house. She did it. But when Jesus came, she said, okay, I did the work I'm going to do. Now I'm sitting at his feet and hearing his word. That's what I'm going to do. I want to hear the precious word of Jesus. And there around with other disciples of Jesus, she said, Martha, you go ahead. You continue the preparation if you want to. I'm going to sit at his feet. I've done some work. Now I'm going to sit at the feet of Jesus to listen to his word. Now to sit at the feet of a rabbi or a scholar was to pay utmost attention to their word and to follow their every thought. Martha, on the other hand, verse 40 says that she was distracted with much serving. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard for Jesus. That was good. But what was the wrong part? She was distracted with much serving. There's nothing wrong with much serving. There's something wrong with becoming distracted with much serving. And what was she distracted from? Well, Jesus is going to tell us in just a few moments here. Here she says, verse 41, or actually Jesus says, And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. You know, you should do a study sometime. I'm, not, I'm just going to suggest this. I'm going to fight the temptation to walk down this trail myself. But you should just do a study sometime on the instances in Scripture where somebody's name is repeated. Okay? Here it is. Martha, Martha, 
you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Now, when Jesus says her name twice, Martha, Martha, can't you almost feel the love in Jesus's voice? He's not angry with Martha. Matter of fact, he's honored. You're serving me so much. Look, you're distracted. You're driving yourself a little bit crazy with the intensity and the perfection of the way that you want to serve me. And Martha, that honors me. But there's something else that honors me even more. Look at what Mary's doing. Mary is humbly, surrenderedly, if that's a word, sitting down at my feet, listening to my every word. He says here in verse 42, one thing is needed. One thing. You know, the Bible speaks of one thing. How about this from Psalm 27, 4? One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Or how about this in Luke chapter 18? We'll get to it in several weeks. He says, when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Come and follow me. Or how about this later on? Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing, one thing, one thing. And I think Mary here illustrates what that one thing thing is. It's to sit at the feet of Jesus, to hear his word, and to let a love and a relationship with him be the power that everything else goes out in your life. Now, I know there might be a, 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 a heart here who hears me say those words and say, yeah, great. Okay, we're all supposed to become monks and go away to a monastery and do nothing. One thing, okay, great. That's all we're supposed to do. Just read my Bible all day long. No, no, this is what you're supposed to do. Sit at the feet of Jesus, which, by the way, is that not a posture of submission and surrender? You're surrendering yourself to him. You're submitted to him. You're hanging on his every word, and you listen to his word. Now, if you listen to the word of Jesus in an attitude of surrender and submission, you know what happens? You'll do what he tells you to do. So when he tells you, Meet the need right in front of you. Oh, okay, Jesus, I'll go do that. And then you'll come back down and sit at the feet of Jesus. And then he'll say, oh, okay, go love this other person in my name. You'll run out and you'll go do that. And then you'll come back down and sit at the feet of Jesus. And instead of it being just a thing of sitting at the feet of Jesus, it will become the foundation, the spring, the, 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 the pillar from which you do all the rest of the work that you do for the Lord. You see, That's the way to go forward, to go on in your work, in your life for the Lord, to keep your mind on that one thing. Look at what Jesus said here in verse 42. He says, Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. Her good part was the simple devotion to Jesus, to love him by listening to his word. And this was Mary's chosen focus. Can I say, I... Look, I'm not saying this to flatter you, but I do want to compliment you. I think that when you come here and give your Wednesday evening to hearing about who Jesus is and what he said and what he did in the book of Luke, 
you are very practically manifesting what Jesus said. Right now, I think you're practicing that one thing. God bless you for it. And I think God will build something good in your life as you do it and as you continue to do it. You keep pursuing that one thing, and Jesus will guide you into all things from the one thing. I believe it with all my heart. Father, that's my prayer. I thank you, Lord, for every Martha that serves you diligently. But God, I pray that you'd help the Marthas, so to speak, among us who get distracted in our service to remember that one thing. I thank you, Lord, that there's so many here and they've just come out to take time out from their their Wednesday evening and say, Lord, I want to sit at your feet. I want to hear your one thing. I want you to guide me into all things by paying attention to you. Bless them for that, Lord. And guide us into the all things that we should be doing, especially, Lord, meeting the needs that present themselves right in front of us. Help us, Lord, to be guided into those all things by giving attention to the one thing. In Jesus' name, amen.